This morning I'm going to ask if you would take your Bibles, and, and for those of you that are joining us online, I recognize that with the spike in, in COVID cases in our area, I've had more and more calls this week of people saying, hey, we're going to be watching you online today until this comes back down a little bit, so I know that there are a number of you watching, and I pray that you'll be joining us as well. If you'll take your Bibles and, and turn to book of Revelations, the third chapter, in just a couple of minutes I'm going to be reading, starting with verse 13. But the title today is about the church in Philadelphia, a faithful church. It's the eighth in the series that we have been doing as we've been going through Revelation. And, and next week we're going to be wrapping up the letters portion of Revelation. And then we're going to be jumping into the throne room of God following that. Um, but as we get to this story of Philadelphia, number one, it's, it's one of the churches that we can all pronounce because we're familiar with that. Uh, and it has been fascinating as we have gone through these together how letters that Jesus directed John to write to seven churches in the first century have so much to say to 21st century Christians about how the aspect of the prophetic nature of God's Word is so alive and real to us that as we look at these, yes, we see how the context of it fits within where they are, but, but understanding how that is released in us has been a fascinating journey. And so, Lord, as we approach your Word this morning, we do so with an understanding that there are aspects of this letter today that you want us to begin to apply to our own lives and so I pray that we will be able to capture the historical nature of it, understand what it meant to the people at Philadelphia, but also that the, the work of your Holy Spirit begins to explode the meaning of all of this to us in our own lives today. And I pray that you would lead us and guide us in all of that, and I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As I have done each week, I want to start with just giving you a little bit of the history of Philadelphia because we've discovered that each of these letters pull out little pieces that when we understand the history of the city, we understand the letter a little bit better. And so in the letter to Philadelphia, it draws on a, on a city that has a rich history of, it own, of its own and then it begins to apply some things to the Christians that were living there. Uh, number one, the city of Philadelphia got its name and... and in fact, it stretches all the way to our city in Philadelphia. You know, it's known as the city of brotherly love. But did you know that it started here? Here's what had happened. There was a Pergamum king. And for those of you that were with us a few weeks ago, you know that Pergamum was the capital city. It was the, the government seat that was there. And it had been established a couple of year, hundred years before Christ. But in Pergamum, there was a young man who had a younger brother. And the older brother became the king. And after he had become the king, he went away on a journey. And while he was away, word got back to the city and word got back to the younger brother that his older brother had been assassinated. And so Pergamum thought that it was without a king. So they went and they loved his younger brother so much that they elevated him and inaugurated him as the new king. A few weeks later, the older brother shows back up. He's not dead. In fact, he is very much alive. And so his younger brother had been installed as the new king. And I don't know if any of you have ever watched any of the history programs, but murders within families, and especially royal families, were not all that uncommon. Uh, it sounds a little bit like our political system today, the, the fight for power and all of these things that took place there. This younger brother recognized that since his older brother was alive, he stepped back and said, you are the rightful king. 
I was inaugurated in your place because we thought you were gone, so I want you to step back into the role. That was highly unusual. The Romans, many years later, as the older brother grew to a place where they didn't like him, approached the younger brother again and said, here's what we would like to do. We would like to kill your older brother and put you on the throne again. And again, the younger brother refused. And so the city that was established that we uh, now know as Philadelphia originally had the name Philadelphus, which literally means for the love of my brother. And that's how that all started, because one brother wouldn't take the throne of his older brother. We find this interesting loyalty that was demonstrated here because it's the same kind of a quality of loyalty that Jesus has for the church and that the church should have for Jesus. Another feature about this city of Philadelphia that relates well is the fact that this city was created to be a missionary city, a missionary in the sense that it was created so that the Greek culture could be expanded, and, and the culture at that time would have been, uh, the language would have been known as the language of Lydia. That would have been the area it was there. And it was so effective after it had been created that within 100 years, the language of Lydia died from the earth, and everybody spoke Greek, and the whole Greek culture had taken over. And so it was so effective in becoming a missionary city. The third characteristic of Philadelphia was that it was an earthquake city. Now, I was told that while I was preaching this this morning, there was a 4.5 earthquake that happened in Massachusetts this morning. And people were sending texts back and forth to family members going, did you feel that? Did you feel that? And if I understood correctly, they are under a tsunami warning on the coast of Massachusetts right now. Philadelphia would have known all about that back in the day. In fact, 17 years after the death of Christ, there was such a great earthquake that struck that part of the world that 12 cities were struck hard. The worst city to take the brunt of it was Philadelphia because it was literally built on the fault line. In fact, the city was practically demolished. There were so many continuing tremors after this earthquake that and they'd happened for so long that people literally packed up their stuff and left the town almost deserting Philadelphia. And interesting enough, some of the only things that were left after all of these earthquakes and tremors were some of the pillars of some of the big buildings, which will give us an understanding of what Jesus was talking about when we get back into a little bit later in his letter. They also had had the name changed a number of times. When Tiberius Caesar learned of the tragedy of the earthquake at Philadelphia, he decided to not only rebuild the city, but he told them, I'm not going to charge you any taxes for five years so that you can reinvest in your community. They were so grateful for not having to pay taxes that they renamed Philadelphia as Neo-Caesarea or New Caesarea. About 50 years later, a new Caesar had come into power and he befriended the city, and so in honor of him, they changed the name of Philadelphia again. This time it became Flava. But after a while, when that Caesar died, they reverted back to Philadelphia. So they were used to having their nature or their name changed depending on the whims of different leaders. Another aspect that will come out as we begin to look at this letter. So let's take now a look at the letter in Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia, right? And, and again, as we've gone through this, that means to the leader, to the pastor, to the, those who are leading this church of Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, 
who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will I leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, a new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. As is customary in each of these letters, the Lord represents himself to the city by features of his personality that specifically apply to the church. And so when we look at this description of Jesus in verse 7, it says, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David, and what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. Now, as we've looked at the five letters up till now, each of these characteristics that Jesus starts the letters with were derived from the vision that John was was displaying or or talking about that he saw in chapter 1 until now. This is not the case here. The details that Jesus takes of his personality here are not from that, but emerge from a conflict that was literally happening in the city of Philadelphia between the church and the synagogue. Here's what was going on. We know a little bit about this, the the fight of the synagogue, because he calls it the synagogue of Satan, Jesus, because we saw it back in Thyatira. But here, the synagogue was in such a war with the new believers because they had left uh, their messianic aspect to follow Jesus Christ, and the people of the synagogue were extremely bitter and angry about those of their members who were leaving to become followers of Jesus Christ. And so what the people in the synagogue were saying about Jesus is things like this. Jesus isn't the holy one. He's the defiled one. He is the unholy one. He, you know, when they talk about him being born of a virgin, they're going, are you out of your mind to believe such rubbish? Who could believe that? Raised from the dead? Impossible. The suffering Messiah? Never. The true one? Absolutely not. In fact, The people of the synagogue were saying, Jesus is the fake. Jesus is the pretender. He is the deceiver of Israel. And this is who's leading people astray. So this is the terminology that's coming out of the synagogue to the church that was living there at that time. And so at the very beginning, when when Jesus is identifying himself, he represents to the church, to those that are followers of him, I am the holy one. I am the true one. And this is spoken in direct rebuttal of what the synagogue of Satan was saying about him. And so the word the Holy One is a term that we are familiar with, especially those of us who have read the Old Testament, because it frequently talks about God and describes him in this way. In Isaiah 40, 25, speaking of the language of the Lord, he says this, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, he declares. 
As Jesus, God is saying in the Old Testament text, there is no one like me. I am holy regardless of what those who do not believe in me say about me. I am the holy one. I am the true one. In fact, it's interesting that in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, as Jesus is casting out a demon and he approaches the possessed man, it is the demon that cries this out. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Even the demons know how holy Jesus is. And so he declares himself that. And so this testimony is given, and, it, it, and Jesus is reminding this congregation who is facing incredible persecution that you have been standing for me, and I want you to know that I am the Holy One. I am on your side, and, and I am working. Though you have been expelled from the synagogue, you are serving the Holy One. I am the true one. And then he identifies himself with these terms. He said, I am the holder of the key of David. And he says, what I open, no one shuts. What I shut, no one opens. This is a reference uh, to Isaiah 22, 22, when in the history of Israel, when King Hezekiah was, was serving, there was a top official that held the keys to who could see him and who was not. And his name was Shebna. Shebna was found to be corrupt, and he had used his office for personal gain, and so God removed Shebna from that role and replaced him with Eliakim, who was told that he is now the holder of the keys to the house of David. And so whoever he let in could see the king, and whoever he shut out was shut out from seeing the king. And so this is the language that Jesus is now saying is, I am the holder of the keys. I unlock doors, and I shut doors. And nobody tells me how to do it or what to do. And so it was in this sense of conflict between the synagogue and the church that the church was being kicked out and excluded from all of these things that the Lord says to them, listen, I know that you feel excluded. I know that you feel expelled, but I want you to know that I am the one that holds the keys. Do not fear the expulsion from the synagogue but you need to fear him who has the power to open and close doors to let you in or to expel you. So we get this study from history, and we understand this conflict that, conflict that Jesus steps into and describes himself as, and he describes himself as he's the Holy One, the True One, and the holder of the keys of David. In other words, to us today, this means this. Jesus alone grants entrance to God. Jesus alone holds the keys. Jesus alone has the authority to say to you, come in, you are welcome, or to exclude you because you are not. Jesus alone allows access to God when we pray daily. He's the one that opens the door so our prayers reach the heart and the head and the ears of a father who loves us and desires to answer us and who allows us that daily communion. And the reason is that Jesus alone is holy and he is true. And then he moves into the aspect of diagnosing these believers. He goes on to say once he has introduced his character to these people, and he begins to, to bring a, con a, com a commendation to the church. In verse 8 he says, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Con continuing in verse 10 he says this, You have kept my word of patient endurance. Interesting thing about the way that this was written is that in Greek, this was 
This was produced in a past tense. In other words, he said, you kept my word. You didn't deny my name, which indicates to us that there had been a crisis in the recent past of this church. Something had happened, and their faith was put on the line. They probably had to come to a point of decision. And in the middle of that decision time, he said, I want you to know that in the middle of all that pressure, I watched you. And you kept the faith. You didn't deny my name. And so I want you to know, because you held true in the middle of that, I approve you for it. I love that aspect because here's what's happening as we apply this to our life. I know just based on some of the conversations that I've had this week, that there are some of you as individuals and some of you as families that are really, really facing testing times. In fact, to the point where somebody asked me, as a pastor... At what point were you in your walk with God when you quit having any doubts about God? I said, I'll let you know when I get there. They go, well, what do you mean by that? I said, honestly, there are moments in my life that I'll look at things going on and I'll wonder what in the world the Lord is up to. How can this possibly happen? Or what can these things do? And I said, I am constantly fighting just like you with the doubts that the enemy throws your way, constantly trying to erode the foundation of your faith. It's something that we're going to deal with all the walk on this earth long. It's going to happen. And so if you're expecting any of us to have it all together where there are never any more doubts, then I don't know who taught you, but it was wrong. And the Lord said to them in the middle of this, in the middle of all that was going on, you kept the faith. You didn't let the crisis destroy you. And so in the middle of what you may be going through, maybe it's the lure of the world or a romantic relationship with a non-Christian or maintaining trust in the Lord during an illness or maybe the death of a loved one you can't understand or a severe hurt or trial that's come into your life that's been so severe in its impact that it has caused you to question the nature and the love of God. In the middle of all of that, he said, you have remained true. And in all of these tests and in all of these crunching trials, the Lord says, I see you when you're holding true, and I want to remind you that I approve of that kind of loyalty, and it will be rewarded. So wherever you are today, and whatever you're going through, and the, the little nuggets that keep being thrown at you trying to erode your faith, I want you to know it's normal. But hang on, because God will reward your faithfulness in all of that. Then he says, let me talk to you about the reward. I love the fact that in Philadelphia there's no criticism. Last week there was no good. This week there was no bad. So the Lord is looking at this church with no criticism. And he says, as I look at your life, even though you feel as a church like you have little strength, maybe you look at your life in comparison to others and you say, as a church, we're not getting done what a lot of these other churches are. He says, but I want you to understand that I see that you have been true and I count that as something that is very special to me. And as a result of their faithfulness, he begins to promise some different things to them. The first one is, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to open doors of ministry for you. In verse 8, he said, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I love the way he said, see, I have placed before you. In other words, there comes moments and times when we have to look through the eyes of the Spirit, not just hear with the ears of the Spirit. 
In other words, this is a door that you are going to be able to see open before you because of your faithfulness to me. And it may not appear like much to anybody else, but you as the church or you as a believer are going to know this is the hand of God opening something that may have in the past been closed to you. And he says, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to give you opportunities to increase your strength and to increase your influence. I love the fact that he talks about open and closed doors because Paul does this a lot as he's talking about his own life, you know, he's always talking about open and closed doors of opportunity. We know that on his second missionary journey, he tried to go to Asia and preach the gospel, but the Holy Spirit forbid him to. I mean, close the door. How many of you know what it's like to think that you're going to do something for the Lord and have him slam a door in your face? Any of you ever experienced that? That is the Spirit's prerogative. And sometimes it spares us from things or it's delayed because the timing wasn't right as it was within this case. Then he tried to go to Bithynia on the southern shore of the Black Sea, but the Lord wouldn't allow him. It was another shut door. But then he came to Troas. He had a vision of the man from Macedonia and he learned that the Lord was opening a door for him to go to Europe. And Paul's commitment to enter that door changed the history of the Western world affecting all the civilizations at that time. It was... An open door of specific significance. And he later talked about it as an open door of effective work. And then he says, but there are many that are opposed to me. As I, as I thought about that, we have gotten into this habit, and, and, and maybe more the American church than the worldwide church, of believing that if God is in something, that he's going to go before you and it's going to be a smooth path. That it will be without obstacle. You know, we, well, you know, he's going before me. He's making the, the crooked way straight and he's knocking down the hills and that if God is in it, it will be without opposition. Clearly, that is not true. I believe that there may be doors of opportunity that God is opening for you, but when you step into them, instantly the opposition comes against you and we step back and say, oh, that's a, it's a closed door. No, 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 no. It's that the Lord's going to provide you the strength and the energy you need to overcome the obstacles as you're moving forward to see great victories. And so we can't assume that just because there's an obstacle, it means that the door is closing. He talks of them, as he says, and uses this term, you have little strength. Now, as I did a little research on this, what I understood within the context of the way it's written is that it wasn't that they were um, puny people. It was that they had a small congregation. In other words, you... Because of the size of your congregation, seem as if you can't accomplish much in a city that seems to be against you. But I want you to know that within the strength that you have, because you've been faithful with what you've got, the doors that I'm going to open are going to give you greater influence than your size, than your little size would allow you to. God was at work among them. And I think that that teaches us something. It says that an open door is given when a church fulfills the conditions that allow it to move through an open door once it's open. In other words, because of the obedience of God's people, he said, I'm going to give you great influence that's going to be beyond your size. I love that as a pastor. I love the fact that in, in obedience to the Lord, he says, if you'll do what I'm asking you to do, I will let you see things that were beyond what you ever dreamed could be possible. Because you fulfill the conditions of loving me and honoring me through it all, I will open doors for ministry for you. I love it when we look at these boxes. 
that there are going to be ministries from these boxes that will stretch throughout the world. People that we may never meet will be touched by the love of your heart. I love the fact that when we step into our foyer, we see strings going all across the world of the missionaries that we support that are loving the lost wherever they are because of your support. In other words, the influence of Grace Assembly is stretched throughout the world because you've been faithful to love and trust God. Then he says, let me talk to you about what's going to happen to your persecutors. He said, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now remember, the persecutors were saying Jesus is the false Messiah and nothing's true about him and that they've got it all together and you guys are being done. He said, there's coming a day when they're going to fall down and acknowledge I loved you. Now, for those of you that have just this little pocket of I can't wait to see revenge coming, that just resides deep in the resources of your heart, you look at this and you're going, yes. Because when we read this, we're going, I'm going to be proven right someday. All those people who told me how foolish I was for having a faith in Jesus, all those people who told me, you waste every Sunday, great day in November, you could be out doing something, you're going to church, and you're thinking, there's coming a day. When you're going to be kneeling at my feet and Jesus is going to say to them, I have always loved them. I was always true. But I have to tell you that that's really not the context of this fully. Actually, the theologians that I've been studying drew two meanings from this passage and both of them are probably correct. What he was telling them is, listen, I want you to know that those who are standing as your enemies that you continue to pray for. Some of you are going to get to see some of them turn their hearts to me. Some of you are going to get the joy of watching those that persecuted kneel before me and submit their lives to me and call me Lord and Savior and that I will get to acknowledge before them that I have always loved you and then I will get to love them. And I think that that's a wonderful way of looking at this for people that in the middle of being persecuted, it's easy to lean toward revenge and hate and the Lord saying, no, 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 lean toward prayer and love because I'm still at work among them. And so for those of you that have family members on a list that you said they are unredeemable, don't quit praying because nobody is unredeemable. God can do anything. And so he's saying because of your faithfulness and your continued love and your continued prayer and the way you do things, some of those people you're going to get to see bow their knee to me and rejoice at what they do. Then we know that ultimately in eternity there's coming a time when every knee, every knee, Nobody excluded will bow before the throne of God. And every tongue will be forced to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he says, I want you to know that I will have the opportunity for those who maybe for eternity will never know the truth. Someday they will bow before me and will know and I will get to acknowledge to them, I loved you. And he moves from there, and he begins to speak to them some comfort concerning the tribulation. In verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. Now, I've told you when we started this study that there were very few places in Revelation where it actually talked about 
the rapture of the church. This is one of those times that could intimate that, that the church will be raptured out of this. Um, and, and I want you to know that before I end this series, I'm going to spend significant time talking about why I believe the Scripture uh, promotes a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I'm not going to get into that now because I wouldn't have time to go all the way through it, but I promise you that I will. But here is where many of the theologians and experts look at this and say, this is what he's talking about. He's saying, because you have been faithful even when it was hard, before the really bad stuff comes, I'm taking you out of there. And we look at that and we're going, hallelujah. I like that. But just in the interest of fairness, let me also point out that there were other theologians that said that's not exactly what that means because in the verb that is used there, that keep you from the hour of trial, that verb is only used in one other place in the New Testament, and that's in John 17, 15, where Jesus says to his disciples, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. And so there are as many theologians that believe that it is true that in the middle of all this, what the Lord is saying is, I'm not going to remove you from everything, but I will provide for you during it all. And after looking at all of this, I'm really not sure enough to say one or the other. I just know that I believe the preponderance of the evidence of Scripture indicates the church will be raptured before the tribulation. But it also indicates that the church before the tribulation could go through some really difficult times. And we need to be prepared for that. And then he moves from there and he comforts them concerning the imminent return of Christ. In verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. Can I, would you just underline that in your Bible? I am coming soon. I want you to underline that. And the reason is this. There are days that you're going, you get up in the morning and you don't even want to face the day and go, today would be a great day for you to come, Lord. I'm ready to see you. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of this. And the Lord just speaks to them in a comforting way. He said, listen, I am coming soon. Don't give up. Hang on to what you've got. He said, hold on to what you have so that nobody will take your crown. There's a responsibility that's given to the church then in the middle of all this to be faithful. Be faithful even in the good times. Be faithful even in the bad times. But be faithful. Hang on to what you've got. Watch that nobody takes what you have from you. There is an interesting way of which this is also interpreted in that term of crown uh, in the way that it was written can also mean service, meaning this. Don't let your service or your love for God or the jobs or the ministries that you do be ripped from you in the last days. Don't grow tired and weary about working for the Lord. Hang on to that because that is what will be rewardable for you. You have a responsibility to keep the crown of service that I have given to you to carry out. And so as I look at that, I think, what crown do I wear as a Christian? Right now, I guess the crown of service that I'm holding is that of pastor. That's my responsibility in the, in, in the body of Christ. But there are many ministries, as I was watching between the services today, of people who are wiping down everything that your hands touch and spraying down our seats to make sure that the germs are there. I want you to know that is a crown of service, and you hang on to that because it's all rewardable. God is going to bless you for the fact that you did not give up and you continued to serve. There are those that are ministering to people and they teach them, our children and adults and deacons and deaconesses and counselors and Bible teachers and servers and exhorters and any number of facets of opportunity in the body that the Lord gives to us. And he says, hang on to that. Don't back away from serving just because it's not easy. Being part of the body of Christ carries with it some responsibility 
And he said, so watch it that nobody seizes your opportunities or seizes your crown because it all depends upon God. And there's some things that he just says, I want to co-work with you to build my kingdom. And then he moves from there into verse 12 where he talks about the certainties of an overcomer when he said, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and never again will he leave it. Now this to a city that's been built on a fault line where everybody left when the earthquake came meant something to them particularly. Because the stories that are told is when they went back to the city after everybody had seen the tremors in, the only thing left standing were some of the pillars of the biggest buildings. And so Jesus is saying there's a permanence to those. I want you to know that I am going to build into you a permanence and that I will never leave you again. It's a great promise to an earthquake city that something remains and is permanent even in the middle of the shaking that's going on. Let me tell you something. We are being shaken. We are being shaken. But the pillar of Christ's love within you will hold you fast in the middle of the shaking. There's a permanence to that relationship that you have with God. And then he goes on from that and he says this. I will write on him or her, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Three names that he speaks of that are going to be written on the Christian at that time. And he describes almost a heavenly passport. He says, because for those of you that have earthly passports, it has your full name, it has where you are from on it, not just the country, but the city, your, your address. And so it is then stamped when you are allowed in or out of a country. So Jesus is speaking about, I am going to give you a passport to my kingdom. And what will be stamped on it will, first of all, be my name and your name and the city of New Jerusalem, which will be your residence. Now, we look at this, and it's interesting that he talks about three names because the city of Philadelphia had gone through three name changes. So it was, it was fitting for them to see all of this. I love the way God talks about the name of God. He says, I'm going to write on you the name of God. I'm going to write on you the name of your city. And I'm going to write on you a, my new name. He doesn't mention the name. So we have seen now in two of the letters. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about the white stone that was symbolic of the fact that the Lord has a new name to give you that you don't know, that he knows, but it's going to indicate the uniqueness and intimacy of the relationship. It's not a name that you get to choose. It's a name that he has chosen for you. And he says, I'm going to write it on the stone, and you're going to look at it, and it will be precious to you forever. How many of you, by the way, still have your white stones? That's pretty good. I figured some of you would just throw them in your yard when you go home. And here he comes back to this name and he says, but there's something more. Not only am I going to give you a new name, but I'm going to write on you my new name. There's a stamp of ownership that God is going to write. And it's a name that none of us have seen, a name that none of us knows. I couldn't help but thinking, I, 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 think, it, I think the movie is Toy Story, Toy Story. I remember watching it with my grandkids and... And I think it was, there was a name written on the bottom of the boot of one of the toys. Some of you are nodding your head, yes. I'm so glad that I got that right. Uh, 
and that was pretty significant through the whole story. And I, I was thinking about that as I was reading the scripture, that there's going to be a name written on us that demonstrates to everybody who we belong to. And he will write that name on. His name. His heavenly name. We might not even be able to say it in this earthly form, but when we get there, he's going to write it on us. Oh, how powerful that is. I'm going to ask him if you'd please come and prepare to play as we get our hearts ready for communion this morning. To this church that seemingly was small but seemed to have done things right, they were faithful in everything that they had been doing. The Lord begins to speak and pours out all these things that he's going to do to bless them and to protect them and to keep them in all these things. And we look at this and say, what can that possibly mean to us today? I draw great pleasure and joy from knowing that God, not only am I identified with God right now because of the blood of Jesus Christ, but I'm going to be further identified with him when he writes his name on me. He possesses me. And that all came through the blood of Jesus Christ. I submitted myself to him at that point. He became my Lord. He became my Savior. And we yield ourselves to him. And I'm going to ask if you would, if you would take your communion cups that are specifically made for isolation times. And we're going to approach communion this morning from the perspective of his identification with us and ours with him. The people that would have been at Philadelphia would have loved the aspect of knowing that though they had been called names and told that they had gone astray, that Jesus says to them, in the end, I'm going to point out to the whole world that it's you I have loved. I have loved you. That's really comforting to me this morning to know that Jesus points and says, I love you. I love you. I love you. The confidence of his love and his mercy to us. And it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that on one of Jesus' worst nights, in fact, this morning as I was reading my scripture, my devotions, it was talking about him praying in the garden when he asked the Father, if it is possible, would you let this cup pass from me? going, I really don't want to do this. I, I really don't want to have to go through this. So if it is possible, would you let this cup pass from me? And then in a total act of submission, he tells the Father, but what I want really doesn't matter if, if that's what you want. Not, not my will, but your will be done. Would you stand with me, please? And in the night in which he was betrayed, he, he took the bread, and I'm going to ask that you would slip the wafer out from the top of your cup. And as he's having this conversation with the men that he loves around that table, he, he took bread and he broke it into pieces and he distributed it to among them. And I have to imagine Jesus probably had distributed bread to them in the past, so that probably wasn't uncommon, but what he said next was... As he got all of their attention, he said, I want you to understand that tonight is different. That that broken bread that you're holding in your hand is a symbol of what's about to happen to me. Because I love you. 
I'm going to submit myself and my body is going to be broken and it will be to your benefit and to my pain. And the benefit of this to you, you will not even fully understand for years to come. You'll understand pieces of it as I die and as I'm resurrected, but you won't understand the eternal benefits of it until your life ends. And I think about that in light of this church of Philadelphia, and he's saying, you've been faithful in the little scuffles and the crisis that you've had to go to, but I'm telling you, stay faithful, because I'm about to write my name on you because of what I have done. So, Lord, we hold before you this wafer, which is a symbol of your broken body that was horribly mutilated. It was beaten and scarred, poked, prodded, nails, thorns, spit at, beard plucked out by people's hands. I can't even begin to imagine the pain. It's no wonder you told the Father, if there's any other way to save these people besides this, would you do it? And then you said, but it's not my will. Your will be done. So, Lord, we ask your blessing upon this symbol of your broken body. Blessed as we partake in remembrance of you. Amen. Let's partake together. Would you carefully open the cup? The, we, the reason that we use grape juice is because it probably looks as close as a juice to blood as anything we can find. You go, oh, Pastor, that's kind of disgusting. Communion is a disgusting event we're celebrating. So disgusting was our sin. So disgusting was everything that we have done to Christ that it took the disgusting sight of his blood to forgive us. And then he said, whenever you do this, remember me. In other words, I don't want this event in my life that I did because I love you to ever be forgotten. And so we look at this, and he said, this is the cup of the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. In other words, because I am about to be slain, no longer will there ever be another lamb or birds or pigeons or sparrows have to be killed for your sin again because... I satisfy the justice of God for your sin. And again, those that were sitting there at that moment didn't fully understand everything that was happening. But so serious was the way in which Jesus handled it that it brought them instantly into this sober moment. And so he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, Father, I pray over this cup that the significance of my blood when it has been written on the door frames of our hearts that the death angel passes over and that we will be declared life because of what Jesus has done. Lord, we look at this today over 2,000 years from the event and understand the significance means that we are closer now to being able to be written on by you with your new name as you identify us as your belonging because of this moment right here. And so would you bless this cup? the new covenant that gives us victory because of what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Let us partake together. Hallelujah. Hold on to those, if you would, for just a moment. 
because of the comforts that the Lord outlined to this city of Philadelphia for their faithfulness, we also likewise are loaded with the comfort of the Holy Spirit for His church today as He leads us and guides us and provides for us and takes care of us and lifts us and forgives us and restores us and renews us and we could go on and on. And these are the comforts that He gives to us in this day and age. So Father, here's what I ask. You had much to commend a small church that you were about to give extraordinarily wonderful opportunities through and open doors. May we as a church likewise see and look for open doors and hear what the Spirit is saying as you lead us through those so that our influence can be greater than our size and that your name will be made famous as our lives radiate the glory of our risen Savior. And Lord, you're coming soon. Soon, we will have the name of God and the name of the city of God and a new name stamped upon us that will declare and seal us forever as belonging to you, full heirs of everything that you've made. So, Lord, as we walk in this day, may we not give up in the middle of the battle, but hang fast to what you have for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen.